Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to be addressed by you, our living God, through your word, which is itself living and active. So speak to us through your servant, by the word preached, and prepare our hearts to be as a field plowed and prepared, ready to, for the seed to be sowed, that it might take deep root and grow up, being nurtured through the living water of your Holy Spirit, and by the Son of the trials you send into our lives, and in all this to bear fruit for your glory. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 16. You'll find this in your pew Bibles on page 948. So Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We're in the second half of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he is teaching us how we are to respond to the amazing grace and love of God shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The glorious gospel, which is the power for salvation to all who believe. And that's all that's required for salvation. Faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yet, once you have received this wonderful salvation, how can you not respond? How Can you but give, how can you but present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God? You must not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you might know and do the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And now Paul has been explaining to us what that looks like. Last time we saw that in terms of life in the body of Christ and using the various spiritual gifts that God has given each member to serve the church. And today we will see it in terms of genuine, sincere love. We see that he is following the same pattern as in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 where Paul's great chapter on love follows the chapter on spiritual gifts and living it out in the body of Christ. First, let me ask you, have you ever met someone who absolutely blows you away by their genuine, sincere love 
from the heart. Pastor Ken Hughes tells the story of a man he met with this sort of contagious love. He later learned the man's story. The man had been showing hospitality. He had invited this man to live. He had welcomed him into his home. But that young man went on to brutally murder this young man's daughter. I can't imagine the father's pain as he grieved his daughter. And yet, with time, according to Christ's command, he forgave that young man and continued to love him. He visited him in prison regularly. He presented the gospel to him. And over time, that young man came to faith in Christ. What love. A love that can only come from the one who loves with a perfect love, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what we are called to in our passage this morning. Genuine love. This passage is made up of a series of 20 short, rapid-fire exhortations. But they fall, all fall under this one heading, the heading of the opening line, let love be genuine. As we work through them, I hope, my prayer for each and every one of you this morning is that the Holy Spirit will convict you and that with all these short commands, it will be a bit too much for you to handle. And that is okay. In fact, that's what I'm saying. It's my prayer. It will be too much for you to handle because genuine love is not something you will master in a day or in a week, but something that you will continue to grow in over a lifetime. My challenge for you today is to walk away this morning with at least one or perhaps two applications that you can put into practice right away in your life. But to get one or two of those gems to walk away with this morning, you'll need to listen to everything I have to say this morning. So listen closely as we walk through the passage one verse at a time. So let's begin now with verse 9. First it says, let love be genuine. This is both a command and exhortation, but also the heading for the the central theme of the entire section. So what does it mean for love to be genuine, sincere? As I so often say, love is not primarily an emotion, but it requires action. Love takes action to meet another person's need, whether you feel like it or not at the moment. And yet, genuine love, sincere love, does desire the best for the other person. Genuine love combines right action along with the right heart attitude. Another way of translating this would be love that is unfeigned. You're not faking it. You're not putting on a show. That is love that is true, love that flows from the heart. This is how love ought to be. And how often we fall short. How we must pray that God would fill our hearts with his love. So that we might love others in this way. Because we look at others and we see them with all their flaws. Not as God sees them created in his own image. And other believers clothed in the sparkling white righteousness of Christ. And so we pray, oh God, give us eyes to see and hearts to love as you love. And this love 
It's the very heart of the law, the very heart of the will of God as both Jesus taught and as Paul will also highlight in the very next chapter. Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And as Jesus was delivering his final, his final words to his disciples the night before he would go to give his life on the cross, he said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 13, 34. So it's no surprise that the very center of Paul's summary of the Christian life stands love. Genuine, heartfelt love. But notice, Paul doesn't actually command love itself. He assumes you will already know love is essential. Instead, his command is, let love, you know you need to love, let that love be genuine, sincere. It must be love rooted in and flowing out of the love that God has shown for you, shown to you in Jesus Christ. And as you receive that love from God and as that love fills you up, it must overflow into all your relationships. And the second half of verse 9 has two closely connected exhortations. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor. It's a very strong word. It means to hate exceedingly. Similarly, hold fast is also very strong. It's the same word that's translated to join to or to cleave to your wife in marriage. Both of these are connected to the genuine love in the first half of verse 9. Love is not directionless or without content. It cannot be exercised apart from morality. It's not amoral. It must, love must abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And that's one reason why it's a great lie when our culture declares concerning gay marriage, they love one another. What harm is it if they marry? But that is not love as the Bible defines it, nor is it marriage. For genuine love, as it says here, must abhor, must hate exceedingly that which is evil, and it must hold fast to what is good. But, don't get too hung up on that example, because that's just one example of many evils that we are called to abhor. And perhaps another place that you have heard that word is in our third membership vow. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness, you abhor and humble yourself before God? That you repent of your sin and that you trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone. In our abhorrence of evil, we must begin not by looking outward at the evils in the world around us, but by looking inward at the sin dwelling within. Start with hating your own sin. Abhor what is evil, but then hold fast, cling to what is good. That is what you are to love. That is what you are to encourage in yourself and what you are to spur on in others. Paul then builds on this in verse 10. First, love one another with brotherly affection. You're probably familiar with the Greek word Paul uses in this verse. It's the name of one of our major cities, 
Philadelphia, brotherly love. But he also combines this with a word that can be translated devotion or affection. A word that's often used to describe the love of a mother for her children. The overall impression is that this describes familial love and devotion. And this is entirely appropriate within the church because we have been adopted as sons of God and we are all one family in Christ. And so we are to love one another and to care for one another as a family. The second half of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Of course, we are to give honor to whom honor is due. But within the Christian family, Paul encourages us to go beyond that, to outdo one another in showing honor. And so you ask, is this some sort of honor-showing competition? It makes me think of the young men at summer camp racing one another to see who could be the first one to open the door for the young women. Or lining up in the dining hall to pull out the chairs for the girls and making sure that all the young girls were seated first at dinner time. Perhaps these are trite examples of showing honor, and many feminists today are eager to see that such small practices of showing honor, they must disappear. However, isn't it sad when no one stands up to offer a seat to an elderly man or to a pregnant woman on public transport? And so we ask, is honor dead today? The scripture says we don't just show honor when it is convenient or even when it is called for, but we are to be the first on our feet to show honor. We are to outdo one another in showing honor to others. In verse 11, there are three brief Exhortations of verse 11, they are all connected together. First, do not be slothful in zeal. It's easy to let the fire of zeal for the Lord go out. As we said a few weeks ago, it's so tempting for the living sacrifice to walk off the altar. To stop taking up your cross daily and following after your Lord. For the Lord is the suffering servant and he calls you to follow in his footsteps, which means dying to yourself. And here it says, do not flag, do not waver, do not grow weary, do not be slothful in zeal. And second, Paul builds on this, be fervent in the spirit. And the Greek word here means literally to boil with heat. And in fact, the older meaning of this word fervor is also intense, boiling heat. And I believe Paul here is not referring to the human spirit, but rather to the Holy Spirit. For it is God's spirit who fills us and sets us on fire for his his service. And that brings us to the third part of this verse, serve the Lord. This zeal, this fervor is not just to stir up our emotions to no end, but rather to empower us to serve the Lord with our whole lives for that living, holy sacrifice, which is our rational worship. In verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Here are three more brief exhortations. They go together. As we serve the Lord, we recognize that we will pass through trials 
and tribulations, and we will need to persevere. The key to this will be prayer to strengthen you, to keep your eyes fixed on your future hope, which will allow you to rejoice even in the midst of pain and suffering. And these three short exhortations here actually summarize what we saw in chapter 8 in greater fullness. First, we have the hope of a coming glory that causes us to rejoice even now in our suffering. Here in 8.18, we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And therefore, we patiently persevere in our trials. So there we had 8.24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And as we wait, we are constant in prayer. So the very next verse, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I'm also reminded of Paul's conclusion to his exhortation to put on the full armor of God so that you might stand firm in the evil day. And after describing all the armor of God, he describes prayer as the chain link that holds all the armor together. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, Ephesians 6.18. So rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Brings us to verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here in verse 13, Paul uses another familiar Greek word. Perhaps you know it, koinonia. And she uses a noun. It's usually translated fellowship. But here... It's a verb, meaning to share in meeting the needs of others. And here Paul is primarily referring to physical needs of others. You might think of food, shelter, clothing. But of course, secondarily, we're to care for all their needs, whether those are emotional, spiritual needs. As we saw last time in verse 8, there were two spiritual gifts listed that were connected with this. The one who contributes and the one who does acts of mercy. But even though some are particularly gifted in these areas and they devote themselves to these things, all are called to do these things, to care for those in need as they are able. Historically speaking, this may have been particularly necessary for the Gentile Christians in Rome because we know from Acts chapter 18 that at one point Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from the city. You can imagine how this would have disrupted their work, how it would have caused great financial hardship. Upon their return to Rome, it would have been a great act of genuine love for them to be received with generous hospitality by their Gentile brothers and sisters in the church. And this connects then to the second half of this verse, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is another way of meeting the practical needs of others. And in showing hospitality to others, we are equally blessed 
by their presence in our homes. And while showing hospitality is a great blessing both to the one who gives and to the one who receives, there's no denying that it can be costly. I've seen the inflation causing my grocery bills to go up, just like I'm sure you have as well. But as times grow tough, this will make hospitality all the more necessary, both for those in need and for those who have the ability who have the excess to share with others. And notice that Paul does not say here, show hospitality when it falls into your lap. Show hospitality when you can't get out of it. Rather, he says, seek to show hospitality. Or we could translate it, pursue hospitality. What does this look like? I would say, each household should have some sort of hospitality plan. One simple, lightweight way to do that would be to sign up for our church's greeters ministry, which would mean you have people over for lunch after morning worship at least once every few months. Something more ambitious would be to plan to have guests once a month. But of course, hospitality doesn't just mean hosting for a meal. Not everyone has a guest bedroom, but if you do, are you seeking to make use of it? If you have clothes that you no longer wear, are you seeking to find a new home for them? Our sister church, River of Life in Phillipsburg, has a clothing closet, which may be a good donation option. And of course, there are many other good options. The point is this, you must seek to show hospitality. Let me say this isn't limited to those who own their own homes. It isn't limited to adults either. Children, they can already be honing their hospitality skills by helping out in hospitality. This is really a call to all believers. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This brings us to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. There's a verbal connection in the Greek between this verse and the previous one. As the same verb is translated pursue hospitality, it is also translated persecute. And this is the one verse in the section that's not focused on relationships inside the church, but is rather focused externally. How are believers to respond to those who persecute us? When they persecute us, rather than cursing them as might be expected... Instead, we are to turn around and bless them. That is, we ask God to grant them grace and blessing. What an action of radical, genuine love. Love even for our enemies. Love even for those who hate us. Now, this is straight out of Jesus' own teaching. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who who abuse you, Luke 6, 27 and 28. This command from Jesus was absolutely unprecedented in the ancient world, not only among Greeks and Romans, but it would have been completely novel to the Jews as well. But Jesus had come to bring in a new heavenly kingdom and with it a radical new way to respond to those who oppose the kingdom of God. Instead of responding to cursing with cursing, 
and to persecution with counterattack, we respond with blessing, with love, with prayer. I ask, how can I possibly do this? It goes against every natural instinct in me. We can only do this with great trust in the Lord, only with great dependence on the Holy Spirit, only as we are strengthened by our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Needless to say, this is not something to attempt alone in your own strength. Think back to the man in the opening illustration. I doubt that the young man who murdered his daughter was seeking to persecute him for his Christian faith, but nevertheless, he responded, just like it says in this verse, with blessing, with prayer, with love, just as Jesus instructs him to do. Now, Paul will circle back to this theme. He will expand on it in verses 17 through 21. And so we will devote an entire sermon to it in two weeks' time. And here it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This brings us to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Love that is genuine identifies with both the joys and the sorrows of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps you've heard the word schadenfreude, which describes feeling pleasure at witnessing someone else's troubles, failures, or humiliation. Schadenfreude is common in the world around us. I've often heard a sports fans saying, perhaps you've said it yourself, my team didn't win this weekend, but I'm just happy that our long-term rival lost. I rejoice in their weeping. The schadenfreude is the exact opposite of what Paul is describing here. When a brother or sister has something that causes him to rejoice, you rejoice with him. Now, sometimes that can be hard to do, especially if another's success provokes jealousy in your heart. That you must repent of that envy, that jealousy, and truly rejoice with your brother. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And when your sister is weeping, you also come alongside and weep with her. This is genuine Christian love. This is Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is life in the body of Christ. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here in verse 16, we again have three connected exhortations, which will support the sympathy expressed in verse 15. First, we are to live in harmony with one another. This can only be accomplished if each one does not think highly of himself, does not give in to pride, but rather is willing to associate with the lowly. This goes back to what Paul wrote in verse 3. Each one is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. The church is made up of all sorts of members. 
both the high and the lowly, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated. And you don't get to choose your family members in Christ. And so you can't let pride keep you from loving and caring for your brothers and sisters. It may just be that God has given greater material blessings to one believer and greater spiritual blessings to another believer so that they might share them with one another within the body. You can't assume that because you have an abundance in one area that you don't need your brother or sister in another area. That's why the body of Christ is made up of many members with a great variety of gifts and a variety of blessings. Finally, Paul urges you, never be wise in your own sight. Wisdom is a wonderful thing, and true wisdom comes from above, from God. This isn't really about wisdom here. He's saying you must not be puffed up in your own eyes, trusting in your own wisdom. This is really a call here to humility. As Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We've seen a lot here this morning. Let me remind you of what I said in the introduction. I don't think this is a sermon where you can walk away this morning and try to put all 20 exhortations into action simultaneously. It is simply too much to handle. I do challenge you to take one or two areas in which you sense conviction, note them down, and commit to putting those into action this week. Love must be genuine. And that has implications for every area of your life, every relationship in your life. I hope, if anything, this long list of exhortations has helped to humble you, has shown you how far short you fall of true, genuine love. For all this is a reflection of the perfect love of Christ, the love that he has shown in his sacrifice for us on the cross. For Christ is the demonstration of the love of God for sinners, sinners like you, sinners like me. And having received such great love, you are charged by Christ. Love one another just as I have loved you. And this is a charge that is too weighty for you, one you cannot fulfill in your own strength. And yet, by the mercies of God, you can present yourself to God one day at a time as a living sacrifice and being filled by his spirit dwelling within you and giving yourself in constant prayer, you will grow little by little in genuine love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our great God, Father of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for your love, that perfect love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And having received that love, how can we but respond, loving you and loving others? Our love is so imperfect, and yet we long to love like we have been loved. And we pray, Lord, that as you have shown us this morning that we have so far to grow, that you would help us, that you would grow us, that you would change us and make us more like Christ our Savior. We do pray all this in his precious name.
Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.